Hello and welcome to the Winston Marshall Show with me, Winston Marshall. Misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, we hear these words again and again. Whether it's Donald Trump saying that the Democrats are kings of disinformation, or whether it's the Davos elite saying that disinformation is the greatest threat to democracy. But what's the truth about disinformation? and How do we make sense of this disinformation and anti-disinformation discourse? Well, it's one of my favorite topics. It's one I've done several episodes on, and not least with Michael Schellenberger, who coined the term the censorship industrial complex. It was the complex that had been built around censoring disinformation, but now was censoring the people en masse. I have spoken to several of the Twitter files journalists, and I have spoken to many of the people covering censorship and disinformation. But there's one writer I was never, never able to get down and talk to properly, and that was Jacob Siegel. Now, Jacob wrote a piece in 2023 called A Guide to Understanding the Hoax of the Century. In that piece, he puts together the entire history of censorship in the American system, in the global system, and how it came about, all in the name of quieting disinformation. So finally, we met in Israel, we got to have a conversation in front of cameras. We met at his home in Modin and we discussed his article, Disinformation, and how it's changed since publication, not least of how it applies to the Israel-Hamas war. So, without further ado, Jacob Siegel. You're listening to The Winston Marshall Show. I wanted to get into a, a bit of history and paint a bit of uh, the story about the censorship industrial complex um, uh, before we get into all these other things, how it applies to the Hamas war uh, uh, and um, uh, the continuation after your publication of, of, these, of this uh, phenomenon. Um, but um, I, I wondered if we could start with your time in the military serving in Iraq and Afghanistan, because is that where you you sort of started to piece together what became your your understanding of this uh, uh, complex? Yeah, I think really in 2012, when I was in Afghanistan as an intelligence officer, for the first time, I was looking at the power of informational systems that were designed to engineer social outcomes. And in this case, the social outcome was not just tied to kind of um, information related to tactical battlefield intelligence to um, win the war as a, a, a battle, as a conventional war. It was we were collecting all of this information in Afghanistan in an effort to transform Afghan society. And that was because we had defined, we being the U.S. leadership, had defined success in Afghanistan, not even victory, because they, they would have found such a term to be crude and, and outdated and, you know, with certain uh, perhaps unfortunate and problematic associations. But success in Afghanistan meant that we had to introduce democracy. It meant that we had to improve uh, conditions for women and inculcate a respect for women's rights. And one of the ways that we set about um, achieving this grand project of transformation. Um, one of the ways, obviously, was through conventional military force trying to kill 
al-Qaeda members trying to to kill members of the Taliban and um, push them out of areas. But another way we did it was through collecting all of this information that we could then feed into civil projects, uh, civic infrastructure, um, really in a a kind of uh, enormous social engineering project. And so I was I was dealing with these informational systems. I was dealing with the confusion about what we were actually trying to accomplish in Afghanistan and how these sort of all-powerful information systems related to those objectives, whether those objectives even made sense. And I was really grappling with that. And uh, So you were in charge of intelligence there, or you were in intelligence? I was a infantry battalion intelligence officer, which is to say I was totally nobody important at all. I was a very low-level kind of tactical intelligence officer. I was not working on any grand strategic decision-making. I wasn't around generals or... But you were privy to the collection of information. And the, the collection of information, I'm sorry to cut you off, but it was so pervasive. It was so integral to the war effort that even a low-level guy like me off on a sort of outpost in the middle of nowhere was immersed in it. It, it, it became one of the primary mediums through which the war was fought. Information collection, information control was so central that even somebody like, uh, somebody like I was dealing with it. How, how, how wide was the scope, how, how pervasive across Afghanistan was the information collection? I mean, it was the the point ultimately was to try and collect every last bit of information available from every source from which information could be extracted. Now, obviously, that's not actually what occurred because there were limited resources for collection. But, you know, we collected biometrics, meaning fingerprints and iris scans. We collected information on soil conditions. We collected satellite imagery. We collected, we used drone feeds to do what's called pattern of life. So figuring out um, sometimes in the case of targeted operations against Taliban members, and sometimes maybe just to, to find out what was going on in a village, you know, when they, um, when they went out to, to uh, when, when goat herding occurred versus when, um, uh, you know, local meetings were held. Anything that could go into the sort of physical and social fabric of the society ultimately was being collected on attitudes among the local population. How did they feel towards the police? How did they feel towards, um, you know, the, the local government, the national government, the Taliban? All of this was being collected. All of it was being fed into these centralized databases. And then ultimately the idea was having collected all of that information, we would not only now have a sort of realistic virtual model of Afghan society, we would have created this sort of digital simulacra of Afghan society, which would not only allow us to examine it in great detail and study it, it would also allow us to do what's called predictive analysis, meaning that if we collected enough information, uh, if, for instance, we collected enough information on attacks originating from a particular village, we would then know when the next attack was likely to occur. We would then know who was likely responsible for the attacks, what social networks they were enmeshed in, the people responsible. And was that effective? No, not at all. Um, 
you can just look at the fact that after 20 years, the Taliban is back in power in Afghanistan. And you could, no one could possibly say that there's any sort of success or victory in, in, in the Afghan, Afghan war. But on a, on a sort of, on a day-to-day whilst you're there, was, it, was there anything redeemable about this tactic to, to acquire information, such abundance of, an abundance of information? Certainly there are very legitimate uses for collecting information and intelligence. Um, so it, my, my argument here is not against information or intelligence per se, but the acquisition of information as a sort of good in itself capable of engineering outcomes, um, which is a sort of at the root of the the kind of Google approach to the world, as much as it was at the root to the, at the root of the U.S. military's counterinsurgency operations in Afghanistan, I think um, can be very powerful at um, controlling people and influencing them, but can't ultimately produce specific outcomes in a kind of algorithmic process. At least we're not there yet. So the the idea that um, with enough information you could transform Afghan society was far beyond what the technology was capable of achieving. And I think also reflected a, a kind of fundamentally um, wrong-headed, pernicious, dangerous way of thinking about the nature of warfare, what, we, you know, what, what a legitimate purpose is for U.S. military power mm-hmm. um, and led us ultimately after 20 years to um, leaving Afghanistan, which was the right thing to do in my opinion, but leaving shambolically, chaotically, and the Taliban immediately resuming power. Mm-hmm. So, um, so tell me on your journey then from that insight that you had there to piecing together this history of information collection, misinformation, disinformation that you wrote about extensively in the great article of 2020, I think the, my favorite article of 2023, the, the uh, understanding the hoax of, of, the, of the century. Take me on that journey then from your realizations or your, your, what you saw in Afghanistan to writing and putting together that history. So I'm glad you liked it. Thank you. Uh, for that, and, uh, you know, I'm it must have been one of the most read tablet magazine articles last year. Was, yeah, I think mean, one of the most read tablet magazine articles in the magazine's history. Oh. And I'm now working on a book for Holt that'll come out in 2025, and we'll go deeper into all of this, and it's really going to get into the kind of still uh, secret history of how this counter disinformation complex um, emerged and who was behind it. But for me, and also for the kind of counter disinformation industry itself. The next big event was in 2014, at which point I was working as a journalist at the Daily Beast uh, magazine, American online magazine, and I was covering both uh, digital protest movements and I was doing national security stuff. So I was writing about like Anonymous, the Hacker Collective, and I was also writing about the Islamic State and I was sort of interested in where those two beats intersected. And there were three major events that occurred in 2014 that together laid the foundation of what would become the great disinformation panic and this new, uh, what Michael Schellenberger calls the censorship industrial complex, 
the counter disinformation complex, which was really the successor in a lot of ways to the American counterterrorism complex. Mm -hmm. and those three events were the Russian invasion of Crimea, the Euromaidan protests in Ukraine, and the uh, ISIS capture, the, the ISIS campaign in Iraq that culminated in the capture of Mosul. And in all three of those, what you had were, um, uh, you had significant social media influence on either foreign policy or, or on warfare itself in the case of both Crimea and ISIS in Iraq and Syria. In the case of Euromaidan, it's a little bit more complicated, but um, still there you had this really large scale information operation background to what was occurring. And certainly in, in uh, Crimea, that was the case. And there was a lot of writing, some of which I contributed myself to the way that ISIS used social media to kind of shape the battlefield mm -hmm. and achieve its objectives in Iraq and Syria. And so what you had at the time was this emergence of this new idea of what was called hybrid warfare. And hybrid warfare referred to the way in which uh, wars were no longer, no longer being won on the battlefield exclusively, but they were now being fought through informational spaces, specifically, specifically through social media. Once you that, had that idea that hybrid warfare was now the kind of dominant mode of warfare, then the idea emerged that if you could dominate the information space, you could win the war. And that's really the sort of foundation of disinformation. Is there an equivalence to what happened in 2014 and the way that changed things to what happened in 2001? And after 9-11, the Patriot Act was used to clamp down and surveil Americans. In 2014, that, that moment with Mosul, Crimea and the Euromaidan uh, event in, in uh, Ukraine, it was a turning point in how... Uh, American government perceived information and disinformation. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's both a, you know, a parallel to be drawn and, and there's a continuum. So the response to 9-11, the Patriot Act, and really also the massive expansion of uh, the surveillance apparatus and the advent of what was known at the time as total information awareness. So the NSA, the U.S. National Security Agency, came up with this program called Total Information Awareness, TIA, which was exactly what I just described to you about what I observed in Afghanistan. It was an attempt to collect uh, the, the maximum amount of information on you know, bad actors everywhere globally, compile them in these ultimate digital dossiers, which could then perform what was known as predictive analysis, tell you what, what was going to come next so that the U.S. could interdict these things before they happened. Now, that program got shut down in the government, right, because it got leaked uh, to, uh, to a member of Congress and, and it got shut down technically. But what actually happened was while the governmental program got shut down, while the intelligence agency program got shut down, it got farmed out to the private tech companies. Yeah. So total information awareness went from being an NSA program, a scuttled NSA program, to being sort of just the profit model, business model of the tech companies who are now performing the surveillance um, on behalf of the US government. And this is what the Snowden leaks exposed was that the U.S. was allowing these companies to do all of this through what uh, 
MIT professor Shoshana Zuboff, she wrote a book called Surveillance Capitalism. She referred to this as the moment of surveillance exceptionalism. So after 9-11, there's this carve out for these private companies to do what's essentially intelligence work, surveillance work. Uh And the U.S. profits from this uh, by maintaining this back door so that it can find out what Apple or or Google um, are collecting. And um, so, so that's the sort of direct continuity uh, between so the two. You write in, in the hoax article about the global war on terror apparatus then being re-consigned or re uh, sort of turned into this uh, new censorship complex. Is that what we're talking about here or is that a slightly different phenomenon? No, it's, it's precisely what we're talking okay. about here. And the, the, the move or the event that consolidates that, that really makes that happen. So you have 2014, you have Euromaidan, ISIS, and this new idea of hybrid warfare, and this new idea that social media is now the end-all, be-all of winning wars, determining geopolitics, right? It's it's no longer about, like, uh, who can win in a physical battle. It's about who dominates the information space. And then you have, shortly thereafter, uh, Brexit and Trump. And this now becomes, uh, in the minds of many of the people who had been sort of theorizing about hybrid warfare, both of these populist uh, uprisings in Britain and the U.S. come to be seen in terms of hybrid warfare. Mm. So they're seen in terms of hybrid warfare in two very important ways. One, it's seen that the social media plays a determinative role. The internet plays a determinative role in shaping the political outcomes. I think that was even more true with Trump than it was with Brexit. And then secondarily, they're seen as arenas in which foreign actors, Russia uh, especially, obviously, has manipulated the internal politics of Western states through its control of social media, through its infiltration of social media to effectively, um, you know, get what it wants and to sort of impose its will. And the, the means through which it does this is disinformation. So now you have this idea that disinformation is the ultimate weapon to control the ultimate battlefield the internet being the ultimate battlefield. And disinformation is the means by which bad actors, foreign actors, uh, the Russian government, can you know, engineer political outcomes in Britain and in the US. Now, of course, this was wildly uh, overstated in the most paranoid and frankly delusional terms a lot of the time. It's Russia did not produce Brexit, Russia did not get Donald Trump elected, but the belief that Russia was doing that very crucially meant that the counterterrorism apparatus in the U.S. now had conflated domestic politics with warfare against foreign states. Mm -hmm. So you have this total breakdown of the boundaries between warfare and politics and between uh, foreign threats and domestic political adversaries. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, uh, if we can rewind one moment, do you think that there, it's true that there is a lot of disinformation on, on online to, to deal with? Do you think that, let's say, 
Hillary tr- it, it says, oh, uh, con- says she only lost the election in 2016, or the Remainers in, in England say we they only lost the uh, Brexit referendum because of Russian dis- disinformation. Ignore the Russian bit, which we can. I'd like to come back to that bit, but just disinformation online. There is an abundance of information. We've never had more information than something that Martin Gurry has written about. Um, and and is it true that there's in- disinformation and? Do, is that something that needs, should anything be done about that? Certainly there is disinformation and something should be done about that. But let's define the terms here because yeah. disinformation refers specifically to deliberately false information propagated to achieve a kind of specific goal, mm-hmm. right? So simply being wrong, even lying recklessly is not disinformation. Uh, Disinformation is a kind of form of deliberate deception, Mm -hmm. the use of false information to produce deliberate deception, which distinguishes it from misinformation, which is uh, false information propagated unwittingly, perhaps, right? Why don't we use the word propaganda anymore? We ought to. What's the difference between disinformation and propaganda? So propaganda, first of all, doesn't necessarily require a deception. Disinformation necessarily means that there is false uh, information. You can propagandize using accurate information, uh, you know, sort of manipulated or recontextualized. And um, I, I think we ought to use the term propaganda more. But, but to we your, can use disinformation distinctly from propaganda. Yes. In, in, in its real meaning, we can. But of course, all of these words are just political tools at this point. They've long since escaped their kind of narrow military or or espionage-related doctrinal definitions. And disinformation refers to essentially anything that uh, runs counter to the interests of the U.S. ruling establishment, the Davos set. And um, that's the problem with the term. But I want to be clear that, of course, there's a vast, vast, there's an ocean of false information. Um, And within that ocean of false information, um, no doubt there are significant information operations being conducted by foreign governments. Mm -hmm. I I don't even think that Russia is at the top, in the top five of the foreign governments. Oh, the British have a a platoon, a battalion specifically for that. As does the US, which it's had since we know of, at least since 2009. So this is well-established. Um, essentially, every country with any power and... And you'd want your own country to have Of that. course you would. Yeah. Of course you would. So this exists. There are steps that should be taken to reduce it. I think that the problem of information, the problem of disinformation, ultimately can't be disentangled from having globalized commercial surveillance databases, which is what a company like Google is running. You, you, you can't really separate these out neatly, um, but there is, to be sure, disinformation. And insofar as it's coming from foreign governments um, and is directed against the U.S., for instance, the U.S. absolutely has a legitimate uh, ability, claim, however you want to phrase it, to combat that. However, most references to disinformation starting in 2016 were not to actual Russian disinformation campaigns. They were to this far sort of larger field of, uh, you know, political discourse in which there may have been some indirect Russian influence, but it's very 
difficult to measure or detect. And ultimately, what you're just talking about is the, the messy, chaotic realm of politics. Yeah, my impression was that with, with both Hillary and what happened in Britain, they didn't have the humility to try and examine where they fell short in those elections, in that referendum. And instead, they could save face by saying it's disinformation. And, and I, I, I mean, that's, that's kind of how I've taken it. I don't know if you... Uh, no, I think that. that's exactly right. But I look beyond just the leading characters and look at the, the sort of vast bureaucratic networks that supported Hillary, that supported the anti-Brexit... Uh, forces in the UK, not only bureaucratic, but, you know, look at all the people who enlisted themselves in this great crusade against disinformation. For many of them, I don't think it was about humility, ultimately, though that played a role. It was about a unwillingness to relinquish power. They viewed themselves as the sole yeah. rightful yeah. possessors of power, and they, by casting their political adversaries in explicitly military uh, national security terms, right? Let's, let's remember, disinformation comes from the Cold War. It's a term of espionage, of competition between state powers, between foreign adversaries. By applying that to domestic political actors, to Trump supporters in the U.S., to uh, Brexit supporters in the U.K., it was a way of saying these people cannot be allowed to wield power. They are foreign threats, they're subversives, and therefore we can use non-constitutional, non-legal military means against them essentially mm -hmm. because they have become a kind of fifth column. Uh, they've enlisted themselves mm -hmm. in the Russian cause. Back to your personal journey, am I right in understanding then that you had this uh, kind of history in your head, but the, the missing piece in the puzzle was what was discovered in the Twitter files and the Russia hoax, specifically Hamilton, Hamilton 68 group, was what you needed to piece it all together. Is, am I, have I right in understanding that? No, I mean, I needed the Twitter files to write that essay ultimately because I had been working on that essay for almost three years before it came out. Wow. And I, frankly, I had the whole thing in my head. I, I knew it personally. Yeah. I couldn't find a way to convince other people and to communicate it in a way that didn't come across as um, either paranoid and conspiratorial or, or sort of um, overly grandiose. You know, when you talk about uh, rigging the U.S. election, controlling the minds of hundreds of millions, you know, attempting to control people's minds, mm -hmm. it has a certain, there are certain connotations and it requires a pretty strong evidentiary basis to make those kinds of arguments. I see. So it's your, it's your hook. For the it was my, my hook and the Twitter files reporting was incredible. And yeah, the Taibi reporting on Hamilton 68 specifically, which is what I opened my own essay with, is what, uh, gave me a way in that I knew because it was so brazen. Can you just ex explain again the Hamilton 68 sure. story for listeners? Sure. I mean, it's a perfect sort of illustration of everything we were just talking about. So Hamilton 68 was an initiative created by a, a group called the Alliance for Securing Democracy, which is partly funded by the U.S., uh, by the U.S. government, that is. And it emerged in 2016, Hamilton 68, as a, a digital dashboard for tracking Russian influence online. 
And what they purported to have discovered was a list of known Russian agents of influence on Twitter. And because they had that list of known Russian agents of influence on Twitter, they could then map out this far larger sphere of influence. So if there were, let's say, I think they, I believe the number they, they cited was 600 uh, Russian troll accounts or, uh, you know, disinformation accounts on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But if you have 600 accounts on Twitter, because it's intrinsically, you know, the social media is a kind of, has asymmetric network effects, you can reach vastly larger audiences. So the claim of Hamilton 68 wasn't simply, we've discovered these 600 troll accounts. It was, we can show you how these 600 troll accounts are directing vastly larger political forces in the US and are behind, directly behind Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and the guy who was leading this was named Clint Watts. And he's somebody who I had actually interviewed when I was still writing about the Islamic State and I was interested in the Islamic State social media campaigns. Very intelligent, former uh, army intelligence officer, former FBI official who had become a, a kind of leading thinker and national security writer about these issues of uh, social media influence campaigns. So Watts is the guy who's behind this. It comes out in 2016 and it immediately gets extraordinary press coverage. Um, And so this is covered in the Washington Post. It's covered in the New York Times and they're all reporting on this very credulously and, uh, you know, as fact. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, Dozens of other places, just in the initial weeks I'm talking about, you know, all told there are probably thousands of references to Hamilton 68's work. Well, it turns out we discover through the Twitter files that not only was it all false because many of the supposedly Russian troll Twitter accounts in that list of 600 were not Russian troll accounts at all, but were, you know, accounts that were simply... um, espousing political opinions that uh, belonged to a category that the Hamilton 68 people Mm -hmm. decided designated them in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But that, you know, they were smearing large categories of Americans with no ties to Russia at all, who weren't even necessarily pro-Russia in any meaningful sense, who might have just been Trump supporters. And we know this because there are extensive records from internal conversations inside of Twitter, including from Twitter's safety official at the time, saying that we've reverse engineered this list, we know that this is bogus, and they're debating whether or not they should expose it, Mm -hmm. right? And at one point, uh, you know, Twitter safety official says it's it's bullshit. Mm -hmm. That's the word he uses. So they know this at the time, Mm -hmm. but instead of exposing it, um, they decide to keep it all quiet. And part of the reason they decide to keep it all quiet, it seems, has to do with the close ties between the upper levels of Twitter executives and national security officials in the U.S. government. And there's, you know, a kind of revolving door between the two of them. Mm-hmm. So Twitter becomes complicit in spreading this disproved by Twitter itself mm-hmm. false Russian influence dashboard, which becomes incredibly influential in spreading the idea that 
Russian disinformation through uh, social media has infiltrated the U.S. political system and got Donald Trump elected. Mm. So, and then at the same time, uh, with the Twitter files, we have the Hunter Biden, the, what happened around the Hunter Biden story being suppressed again, tied in with what you're describing, the revolving door between government and the, the social media companies. We only know about Twitter, but it um, surely extends to the other social media groups all the COVID suppression that's happening at the same time. This must have been for you, considering how you'd pieced this story together, uh, kind of, it, you were vindicated on, on, on your worldview in, in numerous ways, right? Was this just, this must have been a, 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 a kind of miraculous day for you. Yeah, look, I mean, I was happy to be able to get the essay out. It's a bit hard to take too much satisfaction out of chronicling the systematic dismantling of the Constitution and uh, the uh, yeah. America, which I had um, enlisted in the army to defend. So um, I I didn't... The, none of these conclusions that I came to, which were vindicated, um, and this sort of account of the... Uh, counter disinformation complex. None of it was uh, like personally satisfying to me. It was pretty dismaying, and I I had to try and take a kind of detached comic attitude about it. Um, otherwise, I'd lose my mind. You know. So the counter disinformation complex. Let's. So we've got the social media companies. We've got government. There's the media, the press. And then we also have sort of non-profit groups, a couple of which we've touched on. But one of them, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, you might be, Center for, for Countering Digital Hate. Yes. Who have been coming after yes. Elon ever since he took over yes. Twitter. What do you make of that group? Well, so it's interesting that they uh, started in the UK yeah. and then, um, you know, moved to the U.S. and are now headquartered in the U.S. and have become leading actors in this uh, fight against Elon and are produce these reports that have no real scholarly merit but get cited in Congress. I mean, I think that it's, I think that a group like that is an instrument that is used by uh, political forces to... Uh, to create a paranoid idea of pervasive informational threat that justifies government clampdowns. And I think there are a lot of groups that broadly fall into that category, but um, they are one of the most sort of pointedly instrumentalized in that way. You know, there are other nonprofits where they may simply be diluted and they, you know, they sincerely believe um, in some of these things, and there are other nonprofit groups that do some good work on the legitimate kinds of disinformation and uh, you know sort of spread of like uh, dangerous lies online that also maybe get co-opted into some of the more politicized aspects of this. So there are different sorts of nonprofits. That particular group is hyper politicized and um, exists for the reason I laid out to serve certain, uh, ruling class political interests in the U.S. Isn't the correct response to disinformation good journalism, like research journalism, that you disprove disinformation? Isn't that a better, more logical, traditional way of dealing with lies? I think that's an essential response. Mm -hmm. We're, you know, we're a long ways from that, wow. in part because the uh, journalism is effectively subsidized by 
the nonprofit industry and the tech sector at this point, um, you know, and uh, controlled by them. And so good journalism is essential, but we also need more, uh, I think, more wholesale changes to the the structure of the internet. You know, I'm not somebody who's defending social media as an unalloyed good. Um, I think there are real problems, sort of infrastructural problems with social media. I just don't think that focusing on disinformation addresses those real problems. It's a distraction from them. Between Biden and Trump, one thing, the, the Twitter files, uh, Trump wasn't totally exonerated, even though he was a victim. Sure. In, in, for example, the Hunter Biden case was used to, you know, uh, as a as a way of, um, uh, uh, well, if it had come out, the 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 twenty twenty election could have gone differently, not definitely. Um, but it's also the case that the Trump White House were suppressing speech during COVID, uh, at the very beginning of COVID. Do do you think that there's a real difference between the Trump administration and the Biden administration when it comes to countering disinformation and this and and censorship I think there's an extraordinary difference there's no real comparison the the fact that the Trump administration you know cynically tried to use these tools or um, you know undemocratically tried to use these tools is beyond debate but you know corruption is different uh, is is not the same thing as structural systemic control over the political system, which is how the Biden administration was using these tools, right? The, the Biden administration was using these tools in order to control, to engineer political discourse in the US, to disappear narratives that it viewed as threatening to its own power. Mm -hmm. And it was doing this through extensive coordination with the intelligence agencies, the media and the tech companies themselves. The Trump administration was in a very sort of crude, blunt way trying to use tools that were out there to uh, to censor certain ideas and to to um, to punish its enemies. And that's not defensible, but there we're talking about vastly different scales of influence. And I think that um, I think that strictly speaking, the Trump administration couldn't have pulled off what the Biden administration pulled off because what the Biden administration pulled off through its own counter disinformation censorship industrial complex required this, um, what the disinformation experts themselves referred to as a whole of society effort. And the Trump administration could never coordinate a whole of society effort because mm -hmm. the, the leading organizations involved in that whole of society effort were all anti-Trump. So it was simply beyond their reach. Something I find so astonishing, I don't know if you saw this, but Michelle Obama just did a, an interview recently where she said she was terrified of the elections in 2024. And so they're terrified of democracy, it seems like. They, they, it's, it's a kind of, they're a complete bubble. Do, do you have, can you, as an American, I mean, an American Israeli. Can you have? Do you have any in insight into that worldview? Yeah, they're terrified of democracy. I mean, because <laughs> they, they're going to lose, and they <laughs> uh, because they're going to lose, and because they view the um, and be, even beyond. I mean, they're they're related. It's hard to sort of piece apart the self interest from the 
underlying philosophy, but I think they also subscribe to a kind of technocratic worldview in which there really is an elect, an elite whose job it is to coordinate resources to further progress. And the, the demos, the people are a hindrance to that um, when they try to take control of their own government. They're the subjects of it, right? Like you need the people because they are the, the clay to be molded, as it were, but you can't trust them with power. That would be an absurd thing to do. So yeah, I think they're straightforwardly uh, hostile to democracy. And I think much of the sort of disinformation panic was a sort of elaborate, veiled revolt against democracy and, and revolt against uh, um, disobedient voters and a disobedient public. Can we talk about what's happened since you published the article and, and how this complex and also the sort of story of misinformation and disinformation has continued since then? I guess, look, we're here, it's, we're in the middle of the Hamas-Israel war, there's been obvious examples of disinformation. BBC Verify have not covered themselves in glory exactly. Um, the famous example of the Al Ahli Hospital original story was that it had been targeted by the IDF. It then later emerged that it was a, 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 a Gazan rocket that misfired. And then it later emerged that it didn't even hit the hospital, it hit the car park next door. So that's an example of disinformation that kind of goes goes wild. What? How's the story of that been since your article? How, how have things developed? So, uh, you know, the, the Ali Hospital bombing is a, a good example of why I don't think disinformation is the right framing to use for this. Uh -huh. That was malfeasance. That was journalistic malfeasance. There's no evidence uh, that there was manipulation uh, beyond, obviously, Hamas is trying to manipulate the narrative around this. And, um, and of course, Israel is also trying to manipulate the narrative. In that case, it was trying to manipulate the narrative to advance what actually happened, which was that uh, uh, what appears to have been a Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket misfired. Um, and, and, you know, the, the malfeasance in that particular story went even beyond responsibility for the rocket because there was a casualty statistics cited widely across dozens of leading journalistic institutions. I believe it was that 500 people had died, and there's a, a very good writer on Substack named David Zweig who tried to figure out, like, where did this originate from, this, this number? And what he found out, it originated from a mistranslation, mm -hmm. and then it just got repeated and repeated and repeated, and not one of these institutions, yet he wrote an incredible piece on this, I, I highly recommend that people read, not one place stopped to verify this number, which we know led to um, you know, a number of Arab countries canceling their meetings with Biden, riots in cities. So there was actual geopolitical implications from this journalistic malfeasance. Now, I don't think ultimately that it occurred because Hamas successfully um, engineered the narrative in that case. Clearly, Hamas was trying to control the narrative. Clearly, there was false information seeded into the, uh, the, the sort of journalism space. But, but the real problem there was journalists not doing their job mm -hmm. because of their ideological preconceptions, because they're not good at their job, and they, they, um, you know, 
they don't do it well. I mean, I, we You're can speculate. Right? So like, yeah. here's, here's another really obvious example. It's yeah. the death toll in Gaza. Yeah. The numbers which we keep hearing, whether in, in the tens of thousands, those are Hamas numbers. There's, I, don't un, I don't understand how else we could get any those accurate numbers. As a journalist, can you report those numbers but as long as you say they're Hamas numbers? Or like, how, how does... I'm a writer, okay, not, okay. not a journalist. I, I would uh, distinguish, um, but uh, but I'm certainly familiar. I'm a cousin of journalists. Um, yes, I think you can report those numbers, but the contextualizing them goes beyond the sort of uh, just default or knee-jerk, like Hamas-controlled Gaza Health Ministry. It's you know, Israel has also put out casualty statistics. Independent organizations have put out casualty statistics. Mm-hmm. So you can try to contextualize them, try to verify them. You can also really try to parse um, who's caused those deaths. Uh, in the case of the Ali Hospital, we know that that was a misfired rocket, mm-hmm. right? Hamas has fired, not only Hamas, also other groups, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, have fired something like 10,000 rockets. Um, How many deaths have those caused? The estimate is that a quarter of those rockets typically misfire and land within Gaza. So how many deaths are attributable to that? We don't know. I don't think they're anywhere close to, um, you know, I'm not claiming the, the majority of deaths in Gaza unquestionably have been caused by the military counterattack by, by Israel, uh, uh, trying to destroy Hamas. There's no question about that. Mm. And, um, and and so all of these things need to be reported out ultimately. Yeah. But they're not being reported out. People are captured. Journalists in particular are kind of vessels. Mm. And the strongest mimetic influence, the strongest kind of narrative influence captures the vessels and then they spread the message. And um, I don't see that as an instance of the kind of disinformation we were just talking about, though, unfortunately, it seems that the Israeli government does. There was just a piece in Haaretz yesterday, the leading kind of center-left Israeli newspaper, reporting in detail on an Israeli government effort to, you know, fund... uh, man a new anti-disinformation network because they understand that they're uh, sort of abjectly losing the information war and that the that the Israeli position, um, you know, that the Israelis haven't done a good job of defending their own position and also that their adversaries have done quite an effective job. And so they're trying to respond to this through targeted counter disinformation through targeted influence operations i've seen the disinformation i've posted on social media that i'm here and uh and i visited the site of the nova music festival and i've been called a zion shill i've been called uh, uh i saw all of these different conspiracy theories coming up about it like being planned by israel and like you, you see that information it's very prevalent on social media so it's kind of um it's quite shocking i'd also say that the Israel have, and the, uh, Israel have, you know, they set up, they have a, a plan, a media strategy to try and con- convince or or give the counter, give their narrative to the world in the face of the the sort of pro-Palestine narrative that's abundant in the West. They're definitely trying, you know, and and it's kind of normal for them to have that that department, right? 
wouldn't you hope that they have that? Apology? Of course, of course. I, I'm not arguing that Israel shouldn't try to present its case, nor am I arguing that there's not a... Or do, actually, do, do you care? Do, does, does Israel care what the, yes. the world thinks? Yes. Why? Because, uh, you know, it can't exist in total isolation. It wants to maintain good trading relations, good political relations. Um, I don't think that the Hasbara strategy of let's win the minds of the youth through TikTok videos, I think that's pathetic. It's been an abysmal failure. And it's... Um, Are you sure that's been an abysmal failure? Yes. It's been very successful. I would say in Britain and America, and uh, it's... It's been, it's completely warped the mind. I don't even think you can have youth that can even strongman the position of Israel. They've just been so marinated in anti-Israel TikTok. Nonsense. Absolutely. I meant that the Israeli effort to counter that had been an abysmal failure. Oh, sorry. And the reason why the Israeli effort to counter it has been an, an abysmal failure is because it misunderstands how these kinds of ideas take root and spread. The reason why young Americans, a, a horrifying number of young Americans, are not simply anti-Israel, but are willing to believe you know, the most insane um, vilifications of Israel and have accepted a kind of Nazification of Israel is not because their minds have been corrupted by TikTok, though no doubt their minds have been corrupted by TikTok. It's because that fits organically with a broader ideological orientation that's been inculcated into them for years through the kind of woke, racialist, oppressor, oppressed ideology. I mean, in other words, to simply try to treat this as... Uh, a aspect of disinformation or of foreign influence operations without recognizing the ways in which the narrative around Israel now mm. makes perfect sense, is consistent with, you know, the sort of broader worldview that sees uh, white supremacy as a uh, eternal ontological condition, you know, the kinds of arguments being made in 2017 that the, the end of slavery, the end of Jim Crow merely changed the face of white supremacy without actually piercing its heart. And so, you know, there, there may be more insidious or more subtle versions of white supremacy at work in America, but nevertheless, America is no less racist now, you know, no less oppressive towards black people now than it was under Jim Crow or under slavery. And, and there were, you know, these were arguments that were actually being made. People who believe that, people who believe that there was a genocide against transgender people, mm. right? And there was a march, you know, Trans Day of Genocide March last mm. year. Why would it be so hard to believe that those same people could also view the massacre of babies in their cribs, mm. the massacre of innocent civilians? Why would it be so hard to believe that those same people could look at that and see it as a kind of righteous expression of decolonization? I mean, it, it's not uh, it's not exactly inconsistent with that broader worldview. It is a particularly kind of catastrophically radical instantiation of it, but they were telling us all along, you know, we really mean it. And they have to prove to themselves that they really mean it. It's astonishing that they keep banging on both that silence is violence and also misgendering is violence. But then when there's actual images of 
as you say, like what happened October 7th, and they kind of, they justify it. Like they, they start excusing, excusing it. I wanted to know whether in Israel that like that sort of progressivism has a halt. Is, it, is, that, is that a thing here? That particular kind of progressivism, that sort of, uh, you know, late stage, you know, advanced stage wokeness is very marginal here. Um, you know, uh, that's quite marginal here, though you do find, you know, pockets of it in, in Tel Aviv or Herzliya. And I should say, you know, I've only been here for a few years and I'm, I'm an American essentially and I... I'm a Brooklyn boy and I'm, I'm an American. Um, you know, my children um, will be Israeli and hopefully American also, but, uh, but I, I don't have any, I don't claim any uh, great grasp of the Israeli psyche or, or social scene <clears throat> for that matter. But from what I've seen, that sort of advanced wokeness is fairly marginal here. The thing that's more pervasive in Israel is the kind of, almost Clintonite technocratic worldview that thinks that the way to defeat that advanced stage wokeness is through counter disinformation operations. And, you know, that sort of technocratic worldview, which I, I think is um, maybe less uh, despicable morally, sort of, but, uh, but equally, uh, Maybe not less At despicable. At its extremes, it's pretty despicable. That's right. And it also converges with that sort of advanced wokeness because it requires the advanced guard of wokeness mm. to make the radical claims that justify its own technocratic interventions mm. to rectify injustices, mm. right? So they also work in partnership. They work in tandem, but... Um, the climate, they converge particularly over climate and climate catastrophizing. Right. It's essentially anti-human and, and, and I would also say literally genocidal because they actually think there are too many humans. So I do yes. think it's pretty repugnant, that, that worldview, if you listen to what the, the extremities are saying. Yeah, yeah. I think that uh, I think it's certainly anti-human and I think that there's a lot of anti-humanism in uh, both the sort of wokeness and the technocratic worldview. Um, but that the technocratic worldview is the bigger danger to Israel. It's, wokeness is never going to really take hold here, in part because it's an Anglo phenomenon. You know, it's so um, it hasn't even penetrated in France. In yeah, the same it's a way. language it's, thing. It's a language thing, and it's, I think it's also an Anglo Protestant thing. Um, <clears throat> there's a Calvinist dimension to it. Uh, you know, the 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 damned and the the elect. Right. There's a sort of uh, sense that the sin is so um, indelible that it can never be removed. Um, and and also it's a, it, it has a, a particular American character because it also relates to our the American relationship to um, progress, the idea of progress and technology. So I don't I don't think it's ever going to really get very far here. So it's my impression that the Biden administration have reverted back to the Iran worldview, uh, or rather the uh, directing U.S. policy towards peace with Iran, away from Trump's attempt to the Abraham Accords with the whole making peace with the other Sunni Muslim uh, nations in the region, and. It seems to me that the reason they're doing that 
is because they don't want to give Trump the political win. Is that right? Do, am I right in thinking, or is there? What am I not getting about the the worldview of it, of negotiating peace in this region by approaching Iran? I mean, you're clearly right, and the strongest evidence for it is the fact that the the administration put a ban on mentioning the Abraham Accords for uh, the first year that Biden was in the White House. There was a kind of you know unofficial directive for administration officials not to use the term. Abraham Accords, um, totally to deny, not only to deny the political victory to Trump, but to sort of efface its legacy. And eventually their failures elsewhere and the, the, their um, sort of need to claim something that could, could be seen to be working forced them to reverse course on that to some extent. But it, I think in addition to that, in addition to the desire, strong desire to deny any political legitimacy to Trump, let alone political wins to Trump, they also really believe in it. They believe in this view of the Middle East as um, a region that can be harmonized by U.S. power and by proper diplomatic pressures because they have this sort of a progressive technocratic worldview that views these state actors as essentially being, um, you know, widgets, widgets with their own particular strange characteristics, but ultimately susceptible to rational incentives and uh, capable of being brought together integrated is the word that you hear from Sullivan, Jake Sullivan, Anthony Blinken, the integration of um, regional powers and depressurization, right? So Israel, Hezbollah, Iran, the Houthis, yeah, the Houthis have uh, death to America, death to the Jews and their slogan, but ultimately, you know, that doesn't mean that the Houthis can't be pacified, moderated through this um, sort of this condominium, this U.S.-led condominium, because, uh, you know, enemies don't have to be enemies if only they can be made to see the world differently and be brought under this sort of U.S. umbrella. And the thing that frustrates me in the, the discussion of this is that, you know, for all of the sort of um, criticisms of uh, the... the uh, anti-Iran position, let's call it as neocon warmongering or, um, you know, the, the hawkish position, which you hear a lot of, especially these days. The truth is, uh, as I pointed out before, there has been far more war and bloodshed and disaster and calamity under this Obama-Biden um, Iran realignment policy than there was under the Trump pro-Israel, pro-Saudi, anti-Iran policy. Mm -hmm. So whatever you think about the underlying politics or ideology, if you're anti-war in any meaningful sense, you have to grapple with that. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of people who simply refuse to grapple with that. Well, on that note, Jacob Siegel, a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for inviting me and my team into your home and uh, showing me your vinyl collection earlier. And, and uh, I'm sorry it's under such circumstances. Uh, but I hope that we can continue the conversation in the time of peace, um, whether it's here or back in London where we met last time or maybe in New York. But 
It's Inshallah. A, it's a Thank you. Inshallah. Welcome um, in my home anytime. Thank you for listening to the Winston Marshall Show with me, Winston Marshall. If you enjoyed that episode, then I encourage you, I ask humbly, that you might like, share, and subscribe. But otherwise, thanks again.